The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. And welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Jane Haywood. We spoke about the protests in China that have resulted in Xi Jinping's loosening of the country's zero Covid strategy. We talked about the widespread grievances and sporadic protests that have taken place in China over the last decade and the particular importance of the recent worker protests at the giant Foxconn plant in Zhangzhou. We also talked about why it might be that the Chinese state has failed to provide adequate vaccine coverage, especially for the elderly population. And finally, we talked about Western media coverage of the situation. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO's supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles perfect for PTO listeners. At this momentous time for global politics, Verso Books brings you radical voices that challenge capitalism, debate the future of the planet, and work towards real political change. Support their radical publishing by becoming a member of their book club. You'll receive all their new books every month in ebook format, and there are options to receive a curated selection of books delivered to your home. Their December book club selections include Communal Luxury by Kristin Ross, Wages of Whiteness by David Rodiger, and The H-Word, The Peripatea of Hegemony by Perry Anderson. All memberships are currently free for the first month. Go to their website for more information at versobooks.com. And now to today's interview. Jane Haywood teaches China and Global Affairs at the Lao China Institute at King's College London. Her research focuses on China's agrarian sector, how rural land is organised, who controls it and who gets to profit from it. So we're talking a few days after the Chinese government signalled its move away from its zero COVID policy, with the most recent announcement being that those with COVID-19 who have mild or or even no symptoms may now quarantine at home rather than being forced to go to centralised quarantine facilities. And officials have also been instructed to stop launching temporary lockdowns. And there's been a relaxation of testing and health code requirements for so-called cross-regional migrants. The shift in policy came in response to weeks of protest across much of China, including in Beijing, Guangzhou, Hangzhou, Hong Kong, and in parts of the Xinjiang region. Those protests themselves were provoked by the fire that occurred in the capital of Xinjiang that is reported to have killed 10 people and injured nine more, though many suspect the actual figure is higher than than was reported. And those deaths were widely attributed to the effect of lockdown measures. But those protests were also preceded by protests and and, and rioting amongst factory workers who had been subject to the closed loop system, whereby many workers have been forced to live on site in order to reduce the likelihood of COVID-19 spreading further, while reducing the likelihood of, of, of businesses and supply chains being affected. Can you talk a bit about the background to the current protests and, and their scale and, and distribution across the country? Yes, what we've seen in terms of the protest, or at least the way that they have been 
articulated and reported is that they're very much related to the lockdowns. But they are coming out of a context of widespread dissatisfaction about many different issues. Going back as far as the market reforms, China hit upon this development model after the Mao period, which was an export-led development model. So it was based in manufacturing for uh, largely foreign corporations uh, in the special economic zones along the south and east coast. And it involved lots and lots of low-cost migrant workers, um, largely coming in from the countryside, working in these uh, factories, making money for export. It brought in huge amounts of foreign direct investment. So it was hugely successful for a long time. One of the problems with it was this was it was based on low cost labor. So it was very difficult for China to move up the value chain, as it were, uh, start developing high value added products of its own and start to develop a sort of large middle class based on a sort of domestic consumer based economy, which is, I think, ultimately what what the final aim is. So China's sort of on in this development model, but it's quite hard to move off it. Uh, what we then see is a sort of another shift in 2008, where the financial crisis hits. And there's a sort of a shift in the development model at this point where the way that Chinese policymakers deal with the financial crisis as a way to sort of try to keep the economy going is that they start to allow state banks to pour huge amounts of cheap loans into state-owned enterprises, largely in the constructive industry to produce huge amounts of uh, uh, jobs. It's quite successful at keeping the economy going, preventing a massive crash. What you then see because of all those, um, all that government backed debt going into the construction industry is huge amounts of building, uh, and very, very accelerated urbanization all over China. As part of that, because of the way that the construction industry and urbanization processes work, is you get a lot of land transfers. So processes whereby rural land is being transferred into urban land and then built on. And that goes through a process whereby uh, local governments are involved in allowing those land transfers. So what you have is a kind of alliance building up between local governments who are making revenue from those land transfers and urbanization and real estate projects allied with an increasingly strong real estate industry. So what you have at that point is lots and lots of protests over the land transfers because sometimes they're based on uh, dubious legality. So you have people in villages losing their agricultural land, being shifted into uh, tower blocks, sometimes very much against their will. Meanwhile, local officials are getting quite rich and a huge amount of land revenue from this. They're able to deal with the protests to a large extent. They have sort of strategies for dealing with them so that they don't sort of spread across the country. So there are all kinds of um, dispute resolution mechanisms that these processes are channeled into, or there are mechanisms by which officials are able to sort of co-opt uh, group leaders and this kind of thing. But what you wind up with ultimately is strong connections between uh, uh, construction and the real estate industry and local government officials and an economy that is largely 
based on government-backed debt, which is a real problem. All of this is relevant because what Xi Jinping does is he comes along and he says, I'm going to help you to shift. I'm going to help you to bring about this economic shift, basically by reorganizing the economy so that it's no longer founded on uh, state-backed debt the way that it has been for many years. That's going to challenge vested interests. It's going to cause problems for local governments who have been getting their money based on these land transfers. Um, but this is over the past couple of years, this is what Xi Jinping and the leaders at the top of the party have been trying to do. Because of the reforms that he and the leaders at the top are trying to bring about at the moment, reigning in the state-backed debt, we have huge problems in the property sector. Because once all that state-backed debt begins to dry up, as it were, then the property industry starts to become very shaky. So over the past couple of years, uh, since I think summer 2021, we've seen companies like Evergrande, which is a massive, massive construction company, start to get into uh, real trouble. I I've seen figures that say um, the Chinese economy is something like 30% of it is based on the constructive construction industry in one way or another. So this is a massive sort of shock that's going on across the entire economy. It's impacting uh, uh, people, not just directly in the construction industry, but there are huge amounts of uh, uh, people in the middle class who were planning to buy their first homes. They had taken mortgages out on homes that weren't built yet. These homes now aren't being built. So what you have seen uh, over the past few months, even before the lockdown protests, is mortgage resistance, people refusing to pay their mortgages. So as you can see, there's already lots of dissatisfaction, lots of challenges to vest, uh, vested interests, lots of um, concern amongst the middle classes about where, they're, where the economy is going. You lay that on top of the lockdowns, which have impacted in particular people in major cities like Shanghai, which... Um, uh, has simply layered on to, I think, large levels of dissatisfaction that were there already. Um, and with the, sh the the Shanghai lockdown, we're talking about some like 27 million people. This is almost like a country scale lockdown, yeah, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, you mentioned already that, that actually this started off with the massive worker unrest uh, in the Foxconn factory in uh, Zhengzhou. So one of the extraordinary things about this protest and one of the reasons that it is so significant is that you have seen a moment of uh, worker uprising, as you mentioned, workers um, in Zhengzhou in a, 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 an extremely oppressive, controlled uh, closed loop system whereby they have no life at all outside of their working life. They can't leave. They don't know when they're going to be able to leave. Um, it's bordering on a prison system. Then there were also rumours about people um, dying inside the plant um, and people were getting afraid of the um, rising COVID numbers inside the plant. So they were worried for their health as well. Um, they started to try to um, flee. We should probably say that, uh, of course, the West is implicated in this system since uh, these factories are uh, high-tech products for, for export. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this factory is um, it, it's a Foxconn factory, which is a Taiwanese company. It's vast. Uh, it's got about, I think, over 250,000 workers in it. Um, it largely makes 
Apple products. So it makes Apple iPhones in particular. And the Apple iPhone 14 is about to come out, which many um, uh, uh, consumers, I'm sure, are very excited about. The Apple company is very excited about. And one of the reasons there's been so much huge amounts of pressure is that, you know, they're producing these brand new Apple phones in the run up to Christmas. They're absolutely desperate to make sure that they meet their production targets. And it's in this context that workers were starting to uh, flee out of um, uh, the awful working conditions and fear that they weren't safe because there was uh, COVID. There may be COVID uh, spreading around the factory. What um, local officials then did, because they're so keen to make sure that Apple meets their production quotas, is that they... Uh, have gone out and tried to get people at short notice to come and work in the plant. And they offered them uh, very nice economic incentives to do that, bonuses and so forth. When these people showed up uh, and looked at their contracts, they weren't being guaranteed what they were supposed to get. And so what you then got was... um, uh, workers who had been there um, before in the horrible working conditions, the ones who hadn't fled but were still very unhappy with everything that was going on, combining with very, very angry workers who had just arrived and you got these, this massive explosion of protests. So news of this would have gone around the country and, and it's something that, you know, people can resonate with. And it was a fairly rare moment when you ha- would have got a kind of a cross-class um connections, sympathy, empathy, whatever you want to call it, a a kind of a moment of cross-class alliance or or, or mutual recognition that people are in the same sort of boat here in terms of the fact that their lives are repressed and they can't go out wherever they want. Now, that is really unusual um, to get it um, across different cities like that and across class boundaries like that. Now, how far that goes, we don't know yet. But the Zhengzhou protests were huge. Right after that, as you said, just a few days later, there is this horrendous fire in Urumqi in Xinjiang. Um, it appears that um, a number of uh, Uyghurs, we, we don't, I'm not sure we know the identity of who died entirely, but the official number in, is 10 people died. It was very likely more than that. There were people in the surrounding tower blocks really watching it happen and listening to it happen and filming it happen. And uh, as you probably know, because it's been in the press a lot, uh, a fire engines showed up, but for a couple of hours or so could not get near enough to the building to put the flames out. So what yeah, so you... there's those terrible images of the water being directed at the fire, but not actually reaching the the building. Right, right, absolutely horrendous. And there were recordings of Uyghur people inside the building calling for help in Mandarin, which is not the language they would normally use at home. But it's because they were calling for the local officials to let them out. And it is um, uh, there are accounts of people living around those buildings that say actually local officials were actually locking people into their own apartments. It wasn't just the more run of the mill uh, lockdown regulations that they were being subjected to. So this layers on another another issue. We've got the cross-class connection going on. We've also then got a cross-ethnic connection going on because images of these awful scenes went around uh, on social media. And this was the moment that really sparked the protests in uh, other places. 
the, the huge spate of protests across the country on, I, was it, was, I believe it was that, that Saturday in the, at the end of November, where people in Shanghai collected on Wulamuchi Road, which is uh, the, the Chinese name for Arumchi, in symbolic solidarity with the Uyghurs. Now, one thing is really interesting here. We're getting this um, level, this sort of moment of cross-ethnic solidarity. But at, at the same time, it's not entirely clear uh, how much the uh, acknowledgement of the awful lockdown in Xinjiang amongst many of the protests takes into account the fact that actually the lockdown for the Uyghurs would have been on a whole other level from what it would have been for most middle-class Han people living in Shanghai, because the Uyghurs in Xinjiang are already and have for many, many years been subjected to highly repressive conditions, many of them due to what is articulated by the central government as a, a counter, largely as a counter-terrorism measures. We've mm. had perhaps... And, and is actually part of the so-called global war on terror, right? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Hundreds of thousands, perhaps more than a million, uh, Uyghur and other Muslim people have been put into internment camps in an, in an attempt to civilise them, in inverted commas, quote-unquote, out of their religious ways of thinking. I think the idea behind it really is so that they can go and be a nice, pliant labour force and not be concerned with religious and cultural matters to the extent that they might then um, engage in terrorist activities. I think very simplistically that's the logic behind it. To the extent that we have seen calls for the unlocking of Xinjiang by um, other people all across China. I don't know the extent to which that has been, uh, that sort of layer of complexity has been taken into account. Uh, there are some, some left and progressive groups that clearly articulate what has happened to solidarity with the broader uh, uh, Uyghur plight and the plight of the people in Xinjiang in terms of the the broader forms of oppressions to which that they have been subjected to. But I, I, it's not clear to me how much that is uh, broadly spread across all of the protests. Just how sort of surprised were you to see messages of solidarity with, with Uyghurs being made elsewhere in the country? And, and does that suggest to you that the counter-terrorism narrative that is, that is used with regard to uh, Xinjiang and the Uyghur population perhaps doesn't have as much support across the country as might have been believed? That's really interesting. I, I'm not sure we can know at this point. Sort of anecdotally, my understanding is that number one, there is a lack of information amongst many people about what has been going on in Xinjiang. I also think that I, th I think a lot of people see that, see a lot of it as down to exaggeration by Western media, for example, when actually I think it, a lot of the, what we are seeing in terms of the internment camps is based on empirical, quite, quite serious empirical studies. So I think we can take it seriously more than many people in China would like to think. On the other hand, it, it does seem that a lot of Chinese people, at least at, at the very least, have concerns about what's going on in Xinjiang and raise questions about, for example, to the extent which in security terms, this is a good idea. Um, for example, that there might, it might lead to backlash later. I think even people who think that actually 
the state is doing the right thing in terms of educating people out of their superstitious beliefs might well see it as a, a future security problem and therefore perhaps not the most rational thing to be doing. Going back to the lockdowns and frustration with them, to what extent do you think, and I'm thinking more, you know, not so much of, of people, you know, in the closed loop systems who who have more pressing reasons to be frustrated and, and angered by the by the situation, but amongst more middle class people, how much do you think there has been frustration with the lockdowns due to a growing awareness amongst Chinese citizens of just how unusual China's COVID policy is at this stage at the global level and, and how rare lockdowns now are outside of the country. And it's maybe worth mentioning here that, that some have suggested that the screening of World Cup matches showing large crowds of people in close quarters, not wearing masks while watching games and so on, that that may have contributed to that sense of uh, frustration. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think so. I don't think it's just that. I'm sure the World Cup is certainly very visible and it's probably um, sort of rubbed it in for a lot of people. A lot of people are in touch with friends and relatives outside China, for example, overseas students, family, family members overseas, that kind of thing. They can, of course, read about it in the press. The way that the news of this protest spread around the world in the way it did and had such dramatic impact was because of thousands and thousands of people taking clips on their iPhones, posting them on social media, and then those social media posts finding their way out of the country. Um, before the censors could stop them, basically. And there was, um, I did see one of a, an elderly woman in an urban residential complex saying very articulately to a crowd of neighbours, the they look down on us. We should all stop wearing masks. They're not wearing masks overseas and, and, and foreigners are looking down on us because we're stuck, we're all stuck wearing masks. So I thought that was quite striking. For all the, the mental and physical harm that's been caused by the lockdowns, China's persistence in pursuing its zero COVID strategy is not a crazy one, given that mm. the uh, the country's health system is comparable to other middle-income countries. Uh, there's a relative lack of ICU beds and not the number of health professionals, you know, nurses in particular that you would want, and especially in rural areas. And also, given, of course, the relative lack of, of vaccine uptake, particularly in the case of those over 80. And on that latter point, why do you think the government and the Chinese state, which we know has very impressive mobilising capacities, has failed to vaccinate the Chinese population at, at sufficient scale three years now after the first detection of, of cases in Wuhan and now leaving the country in, the, in this very unusual situation where it's going to attempt to navigate out of zero COVID without the level of vaccine protection that was the case in other states that took this path, such as Australia, for instance? It's a, I, I don't exactly know. I can speculate. Because the, the zero COVID measures early on seemed to be working, I think they simply thought they didn't need to, uh, which is really unfortunate. Um, there is a lot of resistance to vaccine taking, um, partly because uh, there, there are a lot of uh, drug and food scandals in terms of dodgy production of substandard foods or, or dodgy products being put into food. There was a major a vaccination scandal in 2018, which received a lot of publicity about, uh, um, I think it was actually a private pharmaceutical company in China putting um, substandard chemicals into their products and then, and then vaccinating large numbers of children. So these things are not going to help. Yes, yeah, so, uh, there was that terrible uh, baby formula scandal as well, which led, led to uh, quite, quite a large number of deaths, right? Yeah, uh, uh, and there was... Um, there was a milk scandal as well uh, while I was living there. And I believe I, I turned out to be drinking that same brand as, of milk. So that was a bit alarming. Um, so there are lots of them and, and these things are widely talked about. 
So I'm, I think that's part of it. Um, I mean, I mean, one thing that may have happened is that there may have been consideration amongst the government that if we try to push through mandated vaccinations, we'll see, you know, massive protests against it and it will be coordinated protests because it will be something that impacts such a large portion of the population. That may be one reason why they were uh, resistant to pushing it. And there's poor education. The state don't seem to have um, gone out of their way to educate people about the benefits of vaccines. So I was listening to, I think it was a a radio report yesterday where people, a lot of people were saying, or people that they'd interviewed had said they didn't understand why people who had been vaccinated were still getting COVID. So they didn't understand. It doesn't block it completely. Um, It it lowers, it, it raises your immunity, but it doesn't block it completely. So they didn't see the point. And they thought basically it was fraudulent. Going back to the protests themselves, these protests are widely being described as the largest and the most significant since the Tiananmen Square protest movement in 1989. What do you make of the Tiananmen Square comparisons? Because you've pointed to the fact that protest is not unknown in China. You know, this is not North Korea. It's not, you know, this sort of very fiercely locked down, totalizing totalitarian state and so on. So do you think it's a bit of a bit of a lazy comparison or, or, or do you think it does actually have some relevance? I don't think it's a lazy comparison in that I think the the level of the protest, the scale of the protest, the prominence of the protests is really extraordinary. And we haven't seen anything like it since Tiananmen. Um, so in that sense, but, but closer comparisons, for example, um, attempts to see these more recent protests as uh, students calling for democracy. Uh, or even indeed students calling for liberal democracy. Um, I think to the extent those kinds of comparisons have been made, they're problematic. I think the Tiananmen Square protests, I, I, I think that's a very easy way for some uh, groups within um, Western media um, to portray these kinds of protests. I think it's an easy way to do it, but I think it's oversimplistic. I think it was oversimplistic coverage of what was actually going on in 1989. And I think it's an oversimplistic coverage of what has been going on this time as well. Um, there's a really great article by uh, Wang Hui, he's a very prominent um, scholar of the left in China. And he does great analysis of the 1989 protests. And he pointed to a lot of the um, media coverage in liberal democracies that pointed to the students and saw that they were demanding democracy, equated that with the same kind of liberal democracies um, that, that, that we have in the UK and the US. But that missed the fact that actually uh, a lot of the protesters were, well, people who had lost uh, the rights that they had had uh, in terms of social protections, uh, as the market reforms had been unfolding uh, throughout the 1980s, people had lost things like um, uh, job security and all kinds of social welfare benefits. This um, is the so-called uh, iron rice bowl. Exactly, exactly. Um, so basically, people in China uh, uh, under the uh, Mao period, in urban areas, they would be attached to their work units and their work unit, that was a job for life. And they would be supplied with all kinds of social benefits, schooling, housing. And so they may not be able to make huge amounts of money. Um, They may not have huge amounts of freedom in terms of where they could go and look for jobs or move around the country. But um, they did, socially, they were protected. 
as the market reforms took off, there were all kinds of benefits that come with them. Um, but people's lives became uh, more insecure than they had been. And so a, a lot of what was going on within these protests was um, demands from the states that the market reforms not be quite so radical and that um, there be more forms of social protection to protect people from these market reforms. So this isn't this isn't a calling for to return for the socialism of the Mao period, but it was a calling for a different kind of social and economic system than the one that was developing throughout the 1980s. And there were calls for democracy, but as Wang Wei points out in the article, it may well have been, or, or some of these calls were for a kind of a more socialist kind of democracy based on forms of stronger social justice. But what the um, press overseas picked up on was not these workers, but the students, the student voices and the student calls for democracy and equated those with calls for liberal democracy and therefore misunderstood a really fundamental part of what the movement was about. I think to some extent this time there has been a, a strong focus on student movements uh, and students uh, in universities calling for um, freedom, freedom of expression, rule of law. And there has been, I think, an implication in at least some of those reports that, that, that the same thing is happening, that these are calls for liberal democracy. But again, that, I think, um, oversimplifies uh, just how complex the protests have been and just how far through different strata of society they, the, 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 these protests have, have penetrated. The latest protests have been, uh, as compared with protests that have occurred in, in previous years and, uh, and decades, uh, they have been characterised by more of a focus on Xi Jinping and, and the Communist Party itself rather than just local officials. How much of that do you think is just due to the more sort of uh, personalistic style of, of leadership that Xi Jinping has adopted, which has led to him being very closely identified with the, the zero COVID strategy? Yeah, uh, you're, you're referring, I think, to the this particular social media video that went round a lot of there's a particular protest in Wulamuchi Road in Shanghai, where there's yeah. a, a guy yeah. shouting down with the party, down with Xi Jinping. And it, it's... Um, I don't know of any other instances where it happened, but that one became extremely prominent. And it was a really extraordinary thing to see because it's so rare to see a call for, for the leader and the, the leader to step down and a call against the party. Um, I, I expect, I mean, this was one event and, and from, I, I don't know, I don't know how widespread that particular call was. This was one guy shouting to a crowd and the shout, crowd shouting it back. It may well have an awful lot to do with the fact that the zero COVID policy was um, very much associated with, I mean, Xi Jinping promoted it as kind of his flagship policy. And so it's not surprising that he would then become the target of protests about it. So I suspect that has a lot to do with it, but it may not because I don't think we've seen, I don't think there's enough evidence to really, really tell us one way or the other. Just on the question of the, of the risks that protesters are taking, probably we tend to think of that just straightforwardly in terms of violence on the street, the violence meted out by the police and security forces and, and, and so on. But what's your sense of the broader risks, whether that's you know uh, incarceration or, or impact on people's careers and personal lives because of, of, of engaging in protests? Yeah, all of the above. Uh, certainly incarceration uh, at the more extreme end. From what I've been reading about so far, many people who had taken part in the protests have been um, called in and had all of their devices 
um, and looked at had to um, give uh, not just fingerprints, but samples of their voices. Um, so are, are likely to be um, surveyed very much uh, more closely uh, from now on. I would, I would just say that I, I suspect we will likely see a class difference in how people are treated. We may well see, um, and I say this because we've seen it before, um, far more harsh forms of punishment meted out to um, uh, uh, worker protests, particularly the violent worker protests, than, than in perhaps the more middle class areas of Shanghai, I'm, I'm assuming. That was true of the Tiananmen yes. uh, protests, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Outside of China, some of those who are very invested in a kind of hardline sort of anti-lockdown or even anti-vaccine politics, many of them on the right, but not solely, are looking at the situation in China and, and, and seeing this very much as, as a vindication of their politics. Is it your view that the protests and the, and, and the outbursts of frustration that we're seeing, do, do you see that as an opposition to lockdowns and containment measures uh, sort of too core? Cool, or, or do you think it's more about protesters wanting such measures to be implemented in a, in a more humane way and in a way which shows greater consideration for, for ordinary people rather than for maintaining industrial production in the factories and, and so on? I think it's definitely the, the latter. Um, we haven't particularly seen evidence that, that of an alliance with, um, or at least I haven't seen evidence of an alliance or a sort of reproduction of the kind of discourses coming from the anti-vaxxers. I'm sure that there are people who would read it that way, the way that people might read these, the people often read protests in China as being about calls for liberal democracy as, a, as opposed to other forms of democracy. Um, but I don't think that we've seen evidence for that. When it comes to media reporting, what, what's your opinion of how the protests are being reported in mainstream media outside of China? And are there any particular aspects beyond the ones we've touched on that you feel are being uh, ignored or, or downplayed? Uh, the first, yeah, the first thing I, I would say is you, what I've talked about already, which is I think there's probably an overfocus on the students, which is um, easy to do because um, they're, this group of people are very social media savvy. So an awful lot of the sources that have come through uh, to um, to those outside who have been watching what's going on and to the media in particular are clips from students. Also, I saw a, a critique by uh, James Millwood, uh, who studies Xinjiang, point out the fact that the um, the press generally have been missing or, or have not been paying enough attention to Uyghur coverage of what happened, uh, particularly in Xinjiang. So, for example, the official death toll of the fire in Urumqi is 10, and that's accepted um, by Chinese state media. But there are um, Uyghur press sources who have been talking to, um, for example, there's a, a publication called the Uyghur Times, who have been talking to uh, local police and uh, people working at the hospitals who put that number at about 44. Um, and he was saying there's been too little coverage of that or too little consideration of that in the press over here. And when it comes to left media, uh, which particular sources would you recommend, especially for those who don't speak or read Mandarin? In thinking about China, I think there is a really active circle of um, uh, uh, scholars and activists in uh, uh, the US 
who have quite sophisticated ways of talking about uh, China, not just in the US, actually, but there are a number of groups. Um, the crit- I was thinking in particular of the collective uh, who call themselves the Critical China Scholars, who are excellent, uh, including people like um, Eli Friedman and Rebecca Carl and, and many others. There's uh, a great online journal, which I think is officially based at Australia National University, although the editors are in different different places around the world, called Made in China Journal. And they are excellent. Yes, I, I would also recommend that. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Tuang is really important. That is, again, a collective of activists inside China and overseas um, concerned with articulating these protests in an internationalist way focused on the concerns of workers in particular. Just going back to the zero COVID strategy, why do you think the leadership became focused on this strategy above all else and w- without properly developing uh, an exit ramp mm. from it? One suggestion I've seen is that this is partly to do with overzealous local officials working towards the Communist Party leadership and that that's led to policy being implemented in a way that was actually somewhat different from what, what the leadership wanted. Yeah, I think that's a lot to do with it. It's important to, again, sort of go back to the beginnings of this. If if we think back to uh, uh, as far back as the Trump administration, if, if you can remember back that far, it seems like a million years ago. But um, this took off during the height of the trade war. Um, there's this massive conflict going on between uh, and sort of rising international tensions already between China and the United States. And in the middle of this trade war, the COVID virus takes off in Wuhan and uh, then becomes sort of utilized by uh, Trump and uh, others in the US and sort of named uh, as a way of saying China and their government system are are completely rubbish. Trump calls it very explicitly the China virus. Um, There's coverage in the media about Chinese wet markets where it was at least at first presumed that this virus came from and how China's backward and unhygienic and all these um, sort of Orientalist stereotypes going on around that time. Then it spreads around the world and... China pursues this very intensive form of test and trace and lockdowns and keeping track of people on their apps. And they manage to get it under control before other parts of the world do. And then they open up to great ceremony before anyone else. And at that point, it completely flips the narrative. Um, And people start to look at China and think, oh, authoritarianism really works when there's a massive pandemic. Um, so in that sense, I think it was I think it was a huge boost for Xi Jinping and the leadership at that time. I think it was a much needed boost from their point of view, given um, the rising tensions around the trade war and given the sort of very um, uh, sort of harsh ideological, I guess, ideological competition that there was at the time. And that, I think, is part of how the zero covid strategy became so tightly associated with Xi Jinping in particular. Then as other variants came along, particularly Omicron, to which it was not quite so, um, uh, to which these these measures were simply not enough. And so they had to, to, to sort of ramp them up and make the lockdowns more and more intensive and longer and longer and longer. The 20th Party Congress was coming on along, uh, which happened uh, in October this year, which was really, really important for Xi Jinping because it, it was going to be announced or at least 
officially passed through Congress, agreed by Congress that he was going to have a third term, which previously Chinese leaders haven't been supposed to do. So that was a little bit controversial already, but he needed to demonstrate that he is able to bring absolute stability um, and um, uh, be, you know, an, an exceptionally good leader in order to be able to legitimate, to legitimate that. And so having, starting to, um, open up and have the Omicron variant running all over the country would have been a really bad thing at that moment. Um, at the same time, as I mentioned that Xi Jinping, for particular reasons, is uh, such a such a strong leader and because of the uh, reforms the sets of reforms and changes that he has claimed he is going to push through has managed to centralize power around himself certainly at the very top um that it is likely that there there was simply a stifling of debate at the top particularly around that time and in those months to the extent that there's been less discussion, it has been very hard to uh, move away from those lockdown measures. And I was having a look in an article on the in the Lancet, the high profile medical journal uh, around this issue, which had reported on uh, various very high level medical experts in China who had said anonymously, nobody's listening to us. Like really nobody's listening to us. This is, this is not about medical policy. This is about this. These are political decisions that have been made. So I think that goes, um, at least some way towards explaining it. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.